the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Welcome to Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Changemakers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. We all lose people and experiences we hold dear. Nothing we love lasts forever. Grieving is a part of being human. Grief can hit us quickly like a bolt of lightning, or it can silently creep up on us before we even know we're in its grip. Many of us try to deny what we're feeling in an attempt to stay positive or stop the pain. According to today's guest, Claire B. Willis, to heal from loss, we cannot disassociate or refuse to feel the depth of our despair. She contends that genuine grieving requires us to be present with the anguish and to be open to the pain of our heartbreak and even embrace our sadness. Claire is a clinical social worker who has been working in the fields of oncology and bereavement for more than 20 years. She is the co-author of Opening to Grief, Finding Your Way from Loss to Peace. Welcome, Claire. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Joan. I'm so happy to be here. So, Claire, as I said in the introduction, we all grieve a loss at one time or another. For the sake of this conversation, what do you mean when you use the word grief? Um, Grief is a, a natural response to a loss of any kind. It applies to any and everything, as big and as large as any loss could be. So it's just a natural response, and I want to emphasize natural because I think so often people have judgments about grief, and so I just want to normalize it and universalize it Mm -hmm. throughout the conversation we have today. If grief is a natural part of living, how does it manifest in our lives? Well, there's a lot of ways. I think one of the common misconceptions about grief is that grief expresses itself through sorrow, sadness, despair, hopelessness. But actually, grief has as many different expressions almost as there are people. So for some people, grief, in fact, for a lot of people, grief comes across as anger or rage. It can be expressed as impatience, irritability, and regret. Regret's a big one. And it even can have positive uh, feelings connected to it, like gratitude. Gratitude is a common one that goes with grief. I hear people say, I'm, despite how sad I am, I'm so grateful I was able to love this person for as long as I was able to love them. And so I think it's important because oftentimes in families, what happens is that people grieve differently. And because they're grieving differently, people think other members of the family are grieving and it creates a lot of conflict. It also can um, express itself cognitively by in our thinking. Our thinking becomes less clear. We're often confused. We're easily overwhelmed. We often, many people can't focus at all. People find it hard to read and concentrate. Um, we get forgetful. In behaviorally, often people will do things. They'll overeat. They'll undereat. They'll overexercise. They're underexercise. They'll overwork. They'll underwork. So the grief has a lot of expressions behaviorally. And I think especially in the time when people have a traumatic loss, that people can have their spirituality or their religion Um, shattered by not being able to understand why this thing has happened. And I think it often accompanies traumatic losses, the spiritual crisis and the the expression of lack of faith or shattered faith. You know, it's so interesting, all of the things that you just described, because I'm sure many people 
don't associate some of those things with grieving. You know, we have this idea that we go through loss and then, you know, it's kind of like a one and done thing. We should be done. We should move on and it's, it's over. I, I remember, you know, about a little over 10 years ago at the start of all the work I'm doing now, this all resulted really from traumatic loss. And in a period of six months, my 23 year marriage ended, my mother died, my sister died, and my oldest son left for college. And so it was like one day I had this particular life and, and the next it was gone. And you know, as time passed, in when when you go through this loss in the early stages, people are around you. But as time passes, you you start to get this feeling, well, you know, people don't really want to hear it anymore. It's old news. And so how do we navigate those feelings we may be having about sharing our pain with others? That's a really interesting question you're asking, because I think it touches on a few things here. One is that when we lose someone we love, or you had what I would call a pileup of losses, you had a bunch of them, um, what happens is that there are what they call in the literature secondary losses. I like the word invisible better. But for instance, when you lose a partner, whether it's through divorce or separation or death, there are losses that accompany that loss that are called secondary, but they're actually not secondary often in, in impact. In, in, in impact, they can actually be primary. So for instance, the other night in my bereavement group, someone said, you know, I don't miss my partner so much as I miss being part of a couple. And then she talked about how friends weren't calling. Other couples would call from Monday to Thursday, but no one called on the weekend. People often experience other losses, such as the, a loss of economic stability, the loss of a co-parent, the loss of someone with whom they were planning future dreams. Some people lose their homes and have to move. So that when someone dies or there's a change that results in a big loss, there are so many tendrils and other aspects of our life that this also touches so I think that's an important thing just to identify and name because often people are overwhelmed with grief and it's way more than the loss of the person. It's that and many other losses as well. Well, as you were saying that, I was thinking just with my divorce alone, it was not just the loss of my husband, but the loss of his entire family. People that's that right. were like brothers and sisters and cousins all of a sudden were gone as well. So you're right. It's not just the one person. It's the dreams. And then it's all those other people that are no longer That's part right. of your life as well. That's right. That's right. There are multiple levels of losses. One of the things that happens is people will hang out initially in the face of a loss, but people return to their lives far faster than the person who's grieving is ready for that to happen. And I think often the second year of grief in the face of a loss is harder than the first year, or especially in the face of a death, I should say, because the first year is taken up with a lot of material planning of the closing of the life, the funeral, all of that. And often it's not until the second year that people begin to grasp what's happened because when we're coping with a loss, we can't deal with it. And when we're dealing with a loss, we can't cope. So we have to choose between coping and dealing. And that first year is about coping. And often later on, the emotional impact is what comes to the foreground. And people are surprised. They'll say, oh, I thought I should be better by now. Well, you know, grief doesn't go away. Mm -hmm. It just changes form. And it changes forms for many years to come. I mean, people have said to me, I don't know how you move forward from all of that. But, you know, the intensity lessens. You're able to get on with your life more and more. But, you know, 10 years later, I can be walking down a supermarket aisle and see a box of cereal and start to cry. And so I want to go (laughs) over with you the stages of grief. Can I say something about what you just said before we go? on, because I think what you just said is really important, Joan. When you're walking down a supermarket aisle and you see a box of cereal and you melt down, I often hear in my bereavement groups, I thought I was doing so well and I walked down the aisle of the market and I saw the cereal and I lost it. And I say to people, you didn't lose it. You had a moment of grasping the full magnitude of what you've lost. We can't hold it all the time because looking at death is like looking at the sun. We look, we turn away, we look, we turn away. We can't sustain it because our psyche couldn't endure it. So our grief comes in waves. And that particular wave that you just described is called, there's an acronym for it, and it's called STUG, um, Sudden Temporary Upsurge of Grief. 
And it happens when people are grieving, and invariably they turn on themselves and say, I thought I was doing well. Well, it's always temporary, and that's the thing to remember, that when you have a, a temporary upsurge of grief, it doesn't mean you're, you've set yourself back. It means you've just had a moment of fully grasping what you've lost. So I wanted to just pause on that before you went on. But I'm glad you did because it actually is a perfect segue into the grief model because it's not linear. The grief model, that's, you know, you can go great. from anger to acceptance to denial and then right back to a, a different level of it. Those stages were in, originally intended to describe the grief of someone who was dying, and they've been overlaid on the people who are grieving. And while those different stages, apply, some of those stages apply, they don't apply in a linear fashion. We all go through denial, we go through acceptance, we go through anger, we go through integration, but it doesn't happen in any sequence. And some people don't even go into all of those stages. So I think we have to be careful with the stage models because what happens is that people will compare themselves to what they know about the stage model. And then they end up shaming themselves for not grieving properly. I don't know whether you've read this quote or heard this before, but I think this is so beautiful. And I, I wish I had found it before I wrote the book. Um, this is something that a man named Jamie Anderson wrote. Grief, I have learned, is really just love. It's all the love you want to give but cannot. All that unspent love gathers up in the corners of your eyes, the lump in your throat, and in that hollow part of your chest. Grief is just love with no place to go. And I think I love these words because it means that we shouldn't, it suggests certainly that we should never suppress our grief because if we suppress our grief, we're suppressing our love. When should a person maybe start to believe that it's time for help? Like how do they know if it's yeah. a natural part of grieving or if maybe there's something a little bit deeper going on? That's a great question. Um, I think that what you're talking about is sort of what is the difference between grief and depression? So if you're not eating, if you're not leaving the house, if you're drinking too much, if you're having thoughts of suicide or joining your loved one somewhere, those are really ominous signs and should be you should seek care for them. The other thing is that with depression there are no moments of light. It it's a gray lens on your on your view of the world. There there are no breakthroughs of of delight or happiness. With grief, grief comes in waves, it comes and it goes. And while you may not want to leave the house and you may have an extra drink, it it's not that sustained darkness that depression will bring. Can a person get stuck in the grieving process? I think depending on pre-existing conditions, yes, they can. I think if you come into, I mean, actually there's a lot of reasons you could get stuck. You could get stuck depending on the um, the details around the death. For instance, I think a suicide can often leave one stuck when there's been a complicated relationship. Um, traumatic deaths uh, can be sticking points. Um, if you've been predisposed to a mental illness beforehand or you're not a very stable person, I think you can get stuck and need some help. So I, I don't think most people don't get stuck, although I think people often feel they're stuck. But mm -hmm. I think that's more a question of being impatient with the process. But yes, I think you can get stuck. And usually it's because of extraordinary circumstances outside or specific complications of the grief, which I've just mentioned. So what about the pandemic that we've all been experiencing? People are, you know, they've lost the, the way of their life. Maybe they've lost their jobs or they've lost a loved one or they've lost their health because of coronavirus. So how has the pandemic impacted the way we grieve? Well, you know, it's really interesting. Uh, um, uh, David Brooks, a New York Times columnist, wrote a column last year. He wrote and asked people how they were doing. And within three days, he had 5,000 replies. And what he discovered was, he described at the end of this article, there's a river of grief, a river of woe that's flowing through our culture. And I love his description of a river because water touches everything. Water seeps in where you don't know it. So everybody in the world has suffered some loss around uh, coronavirus. 
one of the problems that's happened emerged is that not only do we have losses from COVID, but if you have old losses in your life that you haven't grieved, those losses will get evoked from the losses brought about by COVID. So anything you haven't grieved is probably going to come roaring back and be a little confusing for people because they may say, oh, that my mother died 12 years ago. I don't know why I'm thinking about her now. But that's one of the things that's happened. One of the silver linings of the virus has been that grief is now a word in our mainstream media. It's now in our our daily life. And I love that the nuances of grief have been introduced and that it's being normalized and talked about in a way that it never was before. Claire, normally when a person experiences grief, the, the people around them are usually in a better or a healthier mental state. But when we're all experiencing the losses of a pandemic, should we be cautioned about spending so much time talking about the pain with other people who are talking about their pain? Can we go down a very slippery slope by doing that? I don't know. I think it really depends on the person. I think sharing suffering is really important because it lessens the feeling of being alone. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that's been really important about this is that we are all in this together. And there's been a loneliness of being isolated. But the fact that we're all in this together is also a comfort. So I don't know. Now, Ross, Ross Gay, a poet who's an author who's written a book called The Book of Delights, I read a quote by him the other day, and he said, shared suffering, it was something like this, shared suffering can be a source of delight. And I thought, you know, I see this in my groups, that when people see that other people are living with the same experience they are, it's deeply, deeply comforting. So I guess we just have to be careful not to let it become over-consuming, that that's all we talk about. Yes, because there's a lot of blessings that have emerged from this. We've seen expressions of kindness. We've seen people making personal sacrifices. And I think many of us have reordered our priorities. And I think one of the questions that's really important is to think about what have been the gifts of this time. And as we, we're sitting on a threshold now that I think is very important, like we're almost coming back into life, although there's still certainly a lot of uncertainty, but what of this time of isolation and social distancing and confinement, what about that did we learn about in ourselves that we want to bring forward into a life that's not the same that we had before, but might be richer. Can you share with us a few practices that can help us heal? Yeah, I think, well, you know, actually, it's interesting that you just asked me that, because one of the things to help hold grief would be to have a gratitude practice. And there's a lot of research about the neuroplasticity of our brain. And one of the things that they're learning is that the mind is uh, negative, hardwired to be negatively habituated. We tend to notice what's wrong before we notice what's right. So, for instance, if your viewers or your listeners, I should say, and 99% of them said I did a good job and 1% said I did a bad job, my attention would probably go to the 1% and wonder what they were thinking. So what has happened is that because we are we are wired to be habituated negatively, but what's happened is that it really skews the way we experience life. So let's just take a typical morning in your home. You get up, maybe you make a cup of coffee, you use the toilet, you brush your teeth, you get dressed and you leave the house. And you don't notice when all of that works fine. But if the coffee maker overflows or the toilet gets clogged up or you have a fender bender on your way to where you're going, you're probably going to get there and say, I had a crappy morning. Mm -hmm. It was really hard, right? You notice it because your expectations were broken. You notice what happened that was wrong. You don't get to work and say, hey, guess what? The toilet flushed, the coffee maker worked, I got here safely. You don't notice that. We notice what's wrong in disproportion. When we have negative experiences, they stick. We may not remember the details, but we remember the impact. Positive experiences flow through us. We don't remember them in the same way. So one of the ways to develop the capacity 
to hold our suffering and our grief with more resilience is to cultivate a gratitude practice. One of the things that I do before I go to bed is I write down three things that were positive that happened that day, three things that I'm grateful for. And what happens is when I'm committed to that practice, I begin to look for what's right the next day because I'm keeping a gratitude journal. Now, when you notice what's right, what's important is to linger with it for 10 to 30 seconds. And what will happen is you begin to rewire the brain to notice not only what's wrong, because we don't want to miss what's wrong, but to begin to notice in the same way what's right. And what that does is it will strengthen our capacity to hold our suffering. And so it's a very important practice. And if you do this for 21 days, there's a ton of research that talks about how you change your happiness level inside. But we're not doing it to change happiness. We're doing it so that we can hold the suffering and the sorrow in our lives with more ease and resilience. You know, Claire, when I went through those challenges, I started doing a gratitude journal at night. And I remember I was going to write down five things every night. And the first night I thought, oh, I'm, I don't have five things to be happy for. And once yeah. I started listing them, it's like a floodgate opens. And that's you think right. you're going to do five and, and you could do 30 very that's easily. Right. And and that's you know, a wonderful practice. One of the things that, I, and I just want to add to that is that when you write the gratitude, it's important that you write the gratitude in positive language. So for instance, let's say you're a young mother with a house full of children. You don't write, I'm grateful that the house wasn't noisy today. That's a negative expression of a positive experience. You write, I'm grateful there was peace in the house today. I'm grateful for the peace in the house. You write a positive with positive language and it goes in deeper. So I'm so glad to hear that you kept a gratitude journal because <laughs> hearing, hearing that it made a difference for you is, is, makes it more credible than my just saying it. And to be honest, when I started it, I really didn't know what I was doing. I just did it on my own, but it really yeah, it, did have it, a positive experience. It's the one thing that you can do that on a basis of research has shown that people get ha live happier lives. But I think more to the point with grief is that it helps us hold our grief more effectively. The book is Opening to Grief, Finding Your Way from Loss to Peace. If you'd like to get more information about Claire and her work, you can visit openingtogrief.com. Claire, thank you so much for joining us. It has really been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for having me, Joan. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. you feel lost on your journey to health and happiness? Then let us guide you on your path, personalized actions towards health. Your path is a series of choices you act on every day. We guide you on a personalized journey of dietary, exercise, genetic, supplement, and lifestyle choices that lead you to optimal health and happiness. Often taking the road less traveled leads to liberation. Your path is personal. Your journey, like you, is unique. Take action today. Head to bestpathforme.com. Again, that's bestpathforme.com. Hi, this is Joan Herman. Did you know that Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life publishes a free monthly digital magazine that can be read online or emailed to your inbox? Every month, nationally recognized leaders in their field provide information to educate, inspire, and motivate you. We believe in a holistic approach to life, incorporating mind, body, and spirit. Check out a copy of 24-7 Magazine, visit CYACYL.com, and be sure to tell your friends. We all want to live a happy, productive life, but sometimes we just need a little help. Our Coach on Call experts provide strategies to help you live your best life now. Joining me today is Linda Mitchell, a certified transition coach, reinvention expert, and speaker who empowers people that are stuck, overwhelmed, or ready for change to release the struggle, gain clarity, and evolve to their highest purpose as they move through life's challenges and transitions. Linda is here today to discuss how to squash your fear of failure. Welcome, Linda. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me back, Joan. Linda, I think all of us at one time or another have let fear drive the way that we live our life. But you believe mm. that fear is one of the greatest blocks to feeling fulfilled. And you say fear actually settles into our bodies. 
Can you talk more about this? And, and what do you mean when you say it gets stuck in our bodies? Yeah, fear is one of the most powerful emotions. And when we let fear rise up, it has so many detrimental effects. Fear can hold you back from stepping into your full potential and from living your soul's true purpose. Fear prevents us from overcoming the normal obstacles that we face on the way to realizing our dreams. It'll squash your motivation. It can stop you in your tracks, even when you're on the right path. So, I mean, I've even seen it keep people from rewarding relationships and opportunities because it squashes courage. Simply stated, fear, especially the fear of failure, keeps you stuck. Over time, fear leads to feeling unfulfilled, unhappy, or unworthy. And you know what? Studies show that it actually settles into the body, creating illness, anxiety, imbalance, and disease. We humans are emotional creatures, and we need to be able to process our emotions and express them, or they'll show up somewhere else, because our unresolved emotions and issues land in our tissues. Unprocessed emotional energy like fear gets stored in muscles, organs, tissues, and joints. It leads to inflammation, chronic health problems, and compromised health. As a body worker and an integrative coach for years, I have found and seen fear getting stuck primarily in the mid-back and the low-back and the kidneys and the abdomen. I mean, it shows up other places, but that's primarily where we see it. So, Linda, once we recognize that fear is holding us back, what can we do to control it and to turn everything around? Well, first of all, let's remember, fear is a normal human emotion, so we shouldn't beat ourselves up for it. It's essential to acknowledge the fear, accept it, and just decide it's not going to get the best of you. You see, it's what we choose to do with our fear that makes all the difference. There's a classic book on the topic of fear, and I reread it occasionally. It's called Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. I mean, the title says it all, right? I've made it my mantra, and I encourage and guide my clients to do the same. The good news is by pushing past the fear, even in small steps, you grow personally in a way that catapults you into a place of opportunity, adventure, and freedom rather than letting fear take over. I invite you to tune into your body and feel where are you holding it? Discern the source of your anxiety and then put on your objective glasses to see if your fears are real or mostly just in your imagination. Some people catastrophize and only look at the worst case scenarios. That certainly feeds the fear monster. And if that's the case, your fears could be really keeping you stuck. One of the best definitions I've seen for fear is this, false evidence appearing real. False evidence keeps you comfortable and safe, but stuck. And you'll know fear has a grip on you if you start to rationalize. I call them rational lies, right? That's all the reasons why you can't move forward. I have a sign in my office that I look at daily. It says, everything you want is on the other side of fear. This propels me forward and keeps me keenly aware that I can create excuses or rational lies when fear sneaks in. So if you find yourself mired in fear, recognize this human condition. Give yourself a little compassion and then a gentle nudge forward. Hire a coach to be your guide, cheerleader, and accountability partner. Trying and failing is so much less painful than settling and regretting never having tried. We should actually be afraid of stagnation, not failure. Do you believe that it's failure that people fear the most? Yes, absolutely. And the way to get out of this the way to move past it is really one small step at a time. It's really our perspective and our mindset that makes fear of failure overwhelming. Because if you look at failure as simply a part of life, you're more accepting and it feels less crushing when it happens. Here's what I truly believe. Failure is not the opposite of success. It's simply part of it. My kids used to think I was crazy when I congratulated them for their little failures along the way. Now, as young adults, I think they see the wisdom in that encouragement. Because the greatest gift you can give yourself is to recognize that your journey is never going to be a straight path, but maybe one dotted with some hurdles and snags and lessons. If we never step outside of our comfort zones, we never find out what we're capable of. And I read somewhere that at the end of life, it wasn't so much things people did that they regretted. It was the things they didn't do and wish they had tried that caused the most regret. When fear of failure rises up, pause, breathe, and boldly choose one small step that will move you beyond your current obstacle. Just one small step. It'll give you that confidence to take another step and another 
and another. Running from your fear is so much more painful than facing it. Even if you fail at first, it's okay. Figure out what worked and what didn't and try another approach. You know, a smooth sea never made a skilled sailor, right? So we have to keep trying and you'll uncover your courage and find the satisfaction and freedom you deserve. Conquering your fear of failure makes you fierce, wise, and free. Linda, thank you so much for joining us. If you would like to learn more about Linda and her work, you can visit livinginspiredcoaching.com. Or as always, to hear more from Linda, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com slash Linda. We'll be right back. This is WNYF, Hackensack, New Jersey, New York City. Welcome back to Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. My next guest, Elizabeth Miles Graham, experienced sexual harassment and discrimination when she was working at a Wall Street firm. She is here today to share her story and to offer support for others who have gone through a similar experience. Elizabeth is the author of the book, You Know What They Say. Welcome, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Joan. Thank you very much. So, Elizabeth, this is such a brave story that you shared in your book and and that you're here to share with us today. It's going to change so many lives. So let's start off by talking about what happened to you. Tell us about the harassment and the discrimination that you experienced. So what happened uh, initially were some, you know, small sort of inappropriate things like comments about, you know, what I was wearing. And a lot of times I just kind of laughed it off. You know, I didn't, I was a little embarrassed and uncomfortable, but I, you know, I just kind of chalked it up to, okay, this is typical. This is normal. Uh, You know, I have no need to get so upset about it. Um, But what happened was it progressed. It progressed to Um, actual physical um, assault, sexual assault with forceful touching. Um, It uh, progressed to very aggressive dating proposals. Um, Everything was uh, inappropriate all along, but the level of inappropriateness grew uh, bigger and bigger as as time went on. Um, And it was, like I said, from things, comments about what I was wearing to um, trying to ask me out on dates repeatedly and then being told, you know, I'm wrong for passing up a guy like me. And, you know, uh, and it was all, uh, for more than just one man that I worked with actually. And they were all senior to me. Mm -hmm. Did you tell anyone what happened? Um, it took me a long time. Um, was, I was ashamed and embarrassed. Mm -hmm. I, sort of looked at it as my fault, you know. Um, I let these men do this to me. I allowed it to go on. I allowed it to progress. Um, So there was a lot of shame around uh, why I didn't say anything initially. Um, There was also the aspect of um, some business of mine that was taken away from me, and thus I was penalized financially for it. Um, So... I felt really stupid, for lack of a better word. I just, you know, I thought I was helping the group out by sort of letting my manager take over some of my accounts. And like I said, it was just, you know, in in retrospect, I could kick myself, of course. You know, uh, one of those cliches that I talk about in the book is hindsight is twenty twenty. It was so glaringly obvious as it was happening, but not to me. So it took me a while to say something. And when I finally did, um, it only resulted in the firing of one person. That's when the uh, retaliation began for what I had done, because I did take it to the director of our group. Was that the acceptable climate in your company? And with everything that we've learned over the past few years, has anything changed there? So it's interesting that you do bring that up. You know, a lot of my grief and agony about what happened to me um, was because I felt like I could have done more. I, I, you know, my intention was to pave the way sort of at the firm and maybe even in the financial industry or the Wall Street industry 
you know, I'm not 100% sure what goes on at other firms. I knew what went on at my firm. Um, but, and keep in mind, this was, you know, over 15 years ago. So it's my hope, I don't know firsthand, but it is my hope that those sort of climates within these firms are changing because of the Me Too movement. Organizations are being formed to help change these laws. It's very different than than what it was um, back in the day. Yeah. Elizabeth, you said that you felt like it was all your fault. Have you since learned that you did nothing wrong, that this had nothing to do with you? Yes, actually, I have uh, since then. Uh, During the time, unfortunately, I didn't. Um, But it took a lot of therapy uh, recovery because, you know, we do hear some stories, you know, arising from the Me Too movement about women being harassed and making complaints, getting retaliated against, you know, very similar to my story. But we don't often hear about the mental and physical well-being of these women after the dust settles. So I certainly do feel now that I did nothing wrong. Yes, but it did it did take a lot to get to that point. I mean, I didn't even see myself as courageous or brave as this was happening. What would you say to someone who's listening to you right now, who is feeling the way you felt all those years ago, that's experiencing something similar and is wondering what she did to bring that behavior on. She's questioning what she may have done wrong. I say wholeheartedly and with every ounce of my being, you did nothing wrong. It makes me emotional to think about that there are women in pain right now. Um, but you are not alone. You are not wrong. This isn't about you. This is something bigger. And I encourage these women, once they understand that, once they're not ashamed of what happened to them, that they seek help. And that's why, Elizabeth, if I may interrupt for a moment, that's why it's so important that you're here today and that you wrote this book and that you're sharing this story because people, they can see themselves in you, certain people, and they can see that you've been able to heal and that you're moving forward and that there is hope. It was my intention um, when I did revisit this book. Um, And when I say revisit, uh, because I had written this, you know, about 15 years ago as a part of my therapy, my therapist thought it would be a good idea to get it out of, you know, I had a tendency to internalize. Like I said, I felt the shame. I was embarrassed. So I got it out on paper and it was just part of my therapy. And so when the Me Too movement happened, I thought, wow, I certainly am not alone. And wow, maybe there is someone out there who could benefit from hearing my story so that they feel less alone, even if that's the bare minimum they take from this. You know, even if they don't have the re- I hope they have the resources and I want to spread that word. I don't want it to be that they only just feel less alone and that they feel like they can't do anything else. So, Elizabeth, if someone is going through an experience like this, what should he or she do? What, what do you wish you had done all of those years ago? Well, I wish that I didn't live with it as long as I had. I wish I didn't cross my fingers and hope it was going to change and figure itself out. There are more and more organizations, um, part of the government, part uh, nonprofit organizations um, that are out there, and social media can actually really help. There are a lot of really good people you can follow in this sort of arena that can help and give hope. That's the important thing. Um, don't give up. You don't, you know, you don't have to live this way. I wish that some of these resources were around back when I was going through this. I might have, or even just the conversation about it in our, in our world today, if there was more conversation and it was more out in the open, like since the Me Too movement, I wish that we had that more uh, uh, back when I was going through this. How has what you've experienced impacted your life? You know, I initially, 
initially when it first happened, you know, I slipped into a pretty serious depression and I alienated myself from my from my family and friends. But once, um, you know, I went through the proper treatment, I got the proper help, I went through therapy extensively. What I then felt was sort of at peace with what happened. I can't change it, but I can look back on it and use it going forward. It will always be a part of me, this experience. I can't just close my eyes and, and, and forget about it because it helped mold the women, the woman that I've become. Um, I'm a little bit stronger in my beliefs and my actions. Um, I don't settle when things are unfair. I sort of look for a way to acknowledge what's happening and make change and whether uh, with a friend or a family member or my next job, you know, it, it impacts you for life in different ways, but it never leaves you. What I'm taking away from all that you've been telling us is that when something like that happens, your response is to feel guilt or shame or blame yourself and you want to hide and keep it to yourself. But really the, the best thing that you should do is to seek help, to talk about it. It's the opposite of what you want to do, but it's really the best thing for you. Correct. Correct. And again, you might not even realize it at the time. You don't realize as it's happening how much it is affecting you negatively. So the keeping it in and the sort of idea that you're protecting yourself by not saying anything is not, you're absolutely right. It's the opposite. It's not the case. And it may seem so, so hard, but it is what you deserve. You don't deserve to, to sit in this all by yourself. And the help may come in different forms. It might be professional help. It might be a clergy member. It might be a spouse, a friend, a sibling, but don't keep it to yourself. That's exactly right. And I know I was very, very lucky to have the family that I have and the friends that I have, because when I did first say something to my family, and then I realized, okay, I feel a little bit better at getting this out. They were so supportive. The people that I was really hard on ignoring, not wanting to be around um, my family and friends fully supported me once I started talking about it. And it was such a relief. It was such a relief. Elizabeth, what are some resources that are available? Where can people go to get help? So some examples would be the uh, Time's Up Foundation. Um, they are uh, a, they have a legal defense fund for women who can't afford to fight their battle. I mean, I know I had the privilege of being able to do that. Um, you can also just text them, get help. And the text number is 306-44. Another helpful resource is the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Um, their website is eeoc.gov. And then there's another organization, uh, workplacesrespond.org. Um, there are also very good social media sites. Like I mentioned earlier, one of them is leanin.org and another one is Speak Out Revolution. And you can find those on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and, and such. You can also, I have a centralized uh, place. Uh, my website is ElizabethMilesGraham.com. Uh, and there are there is a link to buy my book from there. And there are also links to other resources on my website. Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining us today. You know, I said in the beginning that what you wrote about and what you've shared so openly and honestly will change so many lives. And, and I'm so sorry for what you experienced, but I think that you're going to help a lot of women. That's my hope, Joan. I really, really hope that that, that is the case. So again, Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Joan. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
You work hard on your business, and now you have to feed the beast called social media. You need a simple system to make it easier to get social media done so you can focus on the real business you have. This is Susan McLaughlin from SMC Ventures, and I'm going to tell you a secret about social media you may not know. You don't have to be on every platform. You don't even have to post every day. But you do need to have good content and show up on the platforms your customers are on. Here are three steps we recommend for social media success. One, where are your customers? Are they on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, or some other platform? When choosing a social media platform, you have to figure out where your customers may be looking at you to get an idea of how you work. A website is no longer enough. Two, how many days can you commit to posting on social media? Two days? Three days? Don't jump into seven days a week. The expectation will overwhelm you. You can always add on to the two or three days you can commit to. Now that you've got the number of days you can handle, it will take the pressure off how much content you need to come up with. Three, when thinking about what to post, start with what your customers need to know. This goes right back to why you started your business. There was a need for what you do, and most importantly, the way you do it. You and your business are special. With those three steps, you can start to tame the beast that is social media and start posting good content on your chosen platform a few days a week. If you need help with your social media for your business, give us a call. You can check out our website at smcventures.biz or visit us on Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. This is Susan McLaughlin from SMC Ventures. Simple social media. Healthcare decisions and your wishes is Lori Gardner, a registered nurse, patient advocate, and board certified health and wellness coach. Lori assists people with all aspects of their health care. Welcome, Lori. Thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me, Joan. So, Lori, why is it so important to let people know about your medical wishes? Well, Joan, without making your end of life wishes known to a loved one, a partner, a friend, you could be in a situation where critical life support decisions need to be made, and there isn't anyone that knows how to make them. As a result, it puts extreme pressure on your next of kin or family to try and make these difficult decisions. But by doing this advanced care planning, you kind of maintain control of your wishes, or at least identify them, gain some peace of mind, and ensure that your wishes are honored. I actually have seen patients on ventilators with no quality of life and no chance of recovery for longer than seemed necessary because their wishes were not known. There's so many tools that people can use really to make their wishes known, but it's sometimes hard to have that conversation, you know, with a loved one. And there's this uh, excellent uh, website called uh, theconversationproject.org. They actually help family members set up the environment, set up the words to use on how to have that difficult conversation. Some people find it very difficult. There's also a website I highly recommend and we utilize a lot called Aging with Dignity. And on that website, agingwithdignity.org, they have a booklet called Five Wishes. It's beautiful. You can actually go through that and, and follow the prompts and fill out a booklet that defines your wishes give it to your loved one. It's pretty um, straightforward. But I always say to people, it's not a subject we all like to address, right? I don't want to talk about my death and end of life wishes, but I always say you do it now and you have a little more freedom. You don't have to worry about it. Lori, what documents should every person have? And can you briefly explain each? Absolutely, Joan. First one I would talk about is the advanced directive, also known as the living will. This is where you can be very specific about what your end of life wishes are. And you can use that five wishes uh, product I just mentioned to do that. Then there's the healthcare power of attorney, healthcare proxy. This is a person you choose to discuss your end of life wishes with and your chosen quality of life in circumstances that are at end of life. This person makes the medical decisions for you when you can't. Take some time and counsel choosing this person. It's not always a family member. It should be someone you think has the strength and integrity to follow through with your wishes. There's also the durable power of attorney. This is a person that is designated to act on your behalf regarding financial matters if you become incapacitated. There is a difference between a general POA power of attorney and a durable power of attorney. And that is the general one is effective until somebody's incapacitated, while the durable power of attorney continues to death. Very important distinction. Uh, PULSE stands for the um, Physicians order for life-sustaining treatment, also a very important uh, document as you get older. This is frequently placed on somebody's refrigerator. Um, it's done in, in coordination and collaboration with your physician, and they write up what your end-of-life um, wishes are and orders, and they put it in place. The physician signs it. It's usually kept on your refrigerator because it allows an EMT. In, in the event of an emergency that they come into the house and nobody's there, 
if they don't see that pulse form, they have to do all resuscitative measures. If that pulse form is there and it says no heroics or do not resuscitate, then they will comply with that. That leads right into DNR, DNI orders. DNRs do not resuscitate, resuscitate, excuse me, which means no CPR, cardiac drugs, or placement of a breathing tube, otherwise called intubation. The DNI is do not intubate. CPR and cardiac drugs can be used. They just can't intubate. And then the last one I'll mention is organ donor designation. This is something that some people like to do ahead of time and uh, either decide yes or no that they would donate the organs. Organs. Lori, you've been doing this work for some time. How can people make the right decision when their loved ones didn't share their wishes? Yeah, we have uh, experienced this situation oftentimes across the years, Joan. And I would advise that people go back to the families or whoever it is they trust and have this conversation about how they envision their quality of life, the types of care they want, and end of life. As hard as that is, it's important to do. And if you have to be one uh, raising the question with your family, then you just do it. It's just being proactive. And you do that as you also decide on who your health care proxy is. You know, if you need more assistance, there are people out there like the advanced care planning specialists. You could talk to a therapist about how you go about this, your feelings, even identifying. Sometimes hard to decide what your wishes are. You don't really understand even the medical system. So you get somebody. There's also people that are in the palliative care world. There's a practitioner that could help you make these decisions. So I highly recommend if you you can be proactive, do it yourself. If not, get the help you need. Lori, thank you so much for joining us. If you would like to learn more about Lori and her work or this topic, you can visit healthlinkadvocates.com. Or as always, to hear more from Lori, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com slash Lori. Thank you for joining us. I hope you found the show informative. At Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided is the opinion of our guest and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on our site, listen to past shows on demand, read the digital magazine, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Maximilian Communications, LLC.